welcome to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoyed this message by Pastor David Eldridge. So the last four stories that we've looked at in Mark, Jesus is showing his power, his authority over all of the, we'll call them the enemies of his People. He calms a storm. We see his power over the chaotic forces of nature. He drives a very powerful demon out of a guy named Legion. He uh, heals uh, a woman who'd been sick for 12 years. She'd gone to every doctor she knew. Nobody could help her. And he raises a little girl from the dead. We see Jesus' power, his authority over sickness, over death, over Satan, and again over the chaotic forces of nature. Mark wants us to know that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And those four stories, boom, 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 boom we see the power of Jesus as the Messiah. And so the thinking may be, well, if he's that guy, then surely everybody's following him. I mean, who wouldn't want to follow a guy like that, a guy who's, who has the power and the authority to stand up for his people and to defeat all of the, the forces that would um, bring destruction and chaos into the lives of his people. But we know that's not, that's not, the, that's not the full story. In Mark 6, the tone shifts and we look at some of the opposition that Jesus faces. So this is a long section. We're going to read the first 30 verses. Do your best to hang in there with me. So Jesus left there, that's Capernaum, and he went to his hometown, that's Nazareth, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at Jesus. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a, on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village and calling the twelve to him, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, bag, money in your belts, wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Then they went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that's why miraculous powers are at work in Jesus. Others said he's Elijah. Still others claimed he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I'll give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. 
And once a girl hurried into the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. So Jesus is in Capernaum, and now he goes to Nazareth. It's about 25 miles away. It's his hometown. It's where he spent probably the first, I don't know, uh, maybe the first two years of his life, not in Nazareth. When he moves back from Egypt, that's where he goes. So maybe 27, 28 years, something like that, before he begins his public ministry around 30 years old. That's where he grew up. It's, it's not a town, it's a village. Somewhere between 200 and 500 people during the time of Jesus. Very, very small area. And uh, he goes back and he teaches in the synagogue. Remember we've said before, um, like we looked at last week, Jairus, like his job was to manage the synagogue, manage the worship service, but rabbis would come in and teach. So whoever the synagogue leader is in, in Nazareth, he invites Jesus to come teach. He, he recognizes Jesus' authority as a teacher, and he asks him to come and speak. So on a Saturday, the Sabbath, Jesus stands up to, to teach, and everybody's amazed at him. And their amazement, that word is kind of a neutral word, and for them it moves negative pretty quickly. Uh, I don't know if any of you are from a, a really small town. To me, this is quintessential small town. You've got basically everybody in town going, who does this guy think he is? And, and, and again, it, I think it maybe begins neutral, but they move negative pretty quickly. They're offended by him. That's a big word in the New Testament. That word offend or take offense. If you're, if you're a Christian, it means to fall away. If you're not following Jesus, it's it's a stumbling block. It's something that keeps you um, from following him. And that's their offense. They trip up over who Jesus is. We've already seen religious leaders reject Jesus. And they reject him because they have a picture of who the Messiah is and Jesus doesn't fit it. They have a preconceived notion the Messiah is going to look like this. And Jesus doesn't fit in that box. And so they reject him. The people in Nazareth, it's different. They reject him because they have a preconceived idea of who Jesus is based on 25, 26, 27 years of living with him. And now he no longer fits in that box. They both reject Jesus, the religious leaders in the Nazarenes, not for the same specific reason, but for the same general condition. He doesn't meet their expectations. He doesn't fit in the, the category that they've created for him. And you can maybe imagine how this would happen. He goes home and... They've only known him as a carpenter. That's not a slam to say, isn't he a carpenter? Uh, manual labor was respected in the Jewish world. Actually, a, a father, one of his responsibilities was to teach his son a trade. So that's, that's nothing pejorative there. That's just a statement. Like, he learned how to be a carpenter. He didn't learn how to be a rabbi. So where did he get all this, in, where, where did he get all this wisdom? Where did he get all this insight? He, he didn't go to, you know, he didn't go to Hebrew school. His dad taught him how to be a carpenter. So where is he getting all of this stuff? And then it does turn a, a bit more negative when they say it in this Mary son. As a Jewish man, you'd be known as the son of your father to say the son of Mary. There's probably some hints there that maybe they were saying, hey, we don't even know who your dad is. Speaking about maybe him being illegitimate as a son. So that, that is a bit more negative for sure. And then they're talking about his siblings. What they're saying is we know you. Like we know 
You grew up right down the street. We know what you were like growing up. We know what you were taught. We know what you learned. Where are you getting this stuff? You're not a wonder-working rabbi. You're this guy who was raised in this house to do this job. And they can't get their mind around who he has become. And so he can't do anything there. They, they don't believe. It's not because he's angry at them. It's because they don't believe. There's no, there's no faith. There's no trust in Jesus. And so there's not a lot that he can do. And so he moves on. And then we see another one of these sandwiches of Mark where he takes a story, breaks it apart, and sticks another story in between. Kind of the bread is the sending of the disciples. And in the middle is the martyrdom of John the Baptist. It's an interesting kind of sandwich there. Remember when we see Mark do that, and he does it all the time, we're supposed to understand the stories in light of one another. That's why he uh, sets them up that way. We're supposed to understand the sinning of the 12 in light of the martyrdom of John the Baptist and vice versa. So what exactly is going on? So Jesus says to his disciples, y'all go. First ever short-term mission trip. And he gives them authority. And he gives them authority to do everything that he does. You can share the same message that I share. You can heal people the same way I do. You can drive out demons just like me. And they go and do those things. But what he doesn't give them, it's beginning of summer. Many of you are going to be taking trips. And what you're going to do is you're going to pack. Every one of you is going to pack. If you're going to the beach, you're going to bring you know, beach chairs and sunscreen and a towel. And if you're going to the lake, you'll pack accordingly. If you're leaving the country, you'll check the weather wherever it is that you're landing. You're going to pack. And what Jesus says is, don't do that. You can bring a stick to walk with, and you can bring sandals because you're going to be walking. You can't bring anything else. I don't want you to be prepared for this trip. No money, no food, no change of clothes. I don't want you to bring anything that we would think you would bring if you're going on a trip. The only thing you can bring is stuff to help you actually in the traveling, actually while you're walking. I want you to rely on the hospitality of the places where you're going. There's no indication that these guys have any connection into the villages and the towns where they're going. They're strangers walking in. That's a pretty scary thing. You're going to go and, and you're just, whoever brings you in, you're going to receive hospitality from them. I don't want you bouncing around from house to house. Wherever you go, you just stay there for as long as you're in that town. If anybody won't bring you in, then you can shake the dust off your feet. That was an insult. If a Jew was leaving a Gentile area and going back to his hometown, he would shake the dust off his feet first as a way of saying, I'm not bringing any of this unclean dirt into my new, I mean, back to my clean hometown. So that's a, that's a significant insult to say that. If you're the disciples, again, I think that's probably a bit of an intimidating assignment, not just going out without Jesus, first time you've ever done that, but also don't, don't take anything. And we'll just, you're just going to have to trust. And I think that's the point. It's this tangible expression or demonstration. Your fruitfulness on this trip is going to be tied to your reliance upon God. It's not going to be based on how well prepared you are. And they're kind of living that out. They're not moving around. I think some of that is, I think, for the disciples. You know, when they go to a town, initially, whoever brings them in, they don't know anything about them. They don't necessarily know what they're going to be sharing. They're just offering hospitality out of compassion and generosity. And I think, you know, if they begin uh, to heal people and maybe there's some buzz around them and uh, there might be this temptation from other people in the town to say, oh, come to my house now or Come to my house. And Jesus says, you don't do that. Whoever kind of took the risk of bringing you in initially, whoever expressed that generosity, that compassion, you, you honor them by staying in their house. You don't need to be bouncing around. You certainly don't need to be trying to move up into better 
accommodations. But the picture there, again, is on this trip, you've been given authority, but you haven't been given anything else. All you need is that authority. You don't need anything else. Just trust me. And then we see at the end, verse 30, they come back and we don't really hear from Mark whether they're successful or not. We know from Matthew and Luke that they are. We know there was fruit from what they did. We don't necessarily get that from Mark's uh, story. But in the midst of that, you have this very, you know, it's a pretty dark story about John's martyrdom. Remember John the Baptist? We hadn't seen him since the very beginning. Mark chapter 1, I think verse 14, he's arrested. Why is he arrested? Because Herod, who's the ruler of the area, marries his sister-in-law. That's against, the, that's, a, that's against the law according to Leviticus. And John says something about it. He says, you shouldn't be doing that. You don't, you don't marry your brother's wife. And Herodias, who Herod has now married, she doesn't like it. And so she nurses a grudge against John. She wants him dead. But Herod, maybe out of superstition, protects John. Remember, John was, we'll call him eccentric. That's what he was. He was raised, he, he grew up in the desert. He had a very interesting diet, just locusts and wild honey. He dressed in an interesting way, just a coat of camel's hair. He, he looked and acted and sounded different than that. He was, again, he was eccentric. And maybe there's something about that that uh, maybe kind of drew Herod in. I think John wasn't scared of Herod, which was certainly unusual uh, that he would stand up to him, that he would say what he thinks, even if it cost him. And so there's that kind of, again, fear and maybe some superstition around John. So for whatever reason, Herod protects John. And what He likes to listen to him, even though he doesn't under, fully understand what John is talking about. But then he has, on his birthday, he has a big party and he invites all the kind of big wigs of the area to the party. There's drinking. They're probably, who knows how close to drunk they are, or past drunk they are. At this point, and this is gross. Like, there's no other way of saying it. It's really gross. Herodias sends her daughter, her name is Salome, out to dance for Herod and his guests. And she dances in such a way that it causes Herod to say, whatever you want, I'll give it to you. So we can assume she's not, she's not doing the waltz. Like there's, it's, it's gross. And she, she's being used by her mother to leverage her mother's husband to kill John the Baptist. I mean, the whole thing is just nasty, but it's effective. Herod is backed into a corner. He doesn't want to embarrass himself because he's just made this promise. So when she goes to her mom and says, what should I ask for? And her mom says the head of John the Baptist, she already knew what she wanted and then Salome comes back and asks for it. Herod feels, again, he feels backed into a corner. He doesn't want to embarrass himself in front of his guests, so he says, okay. So they cut off John the Baptist's head, bring it to Salome, who takes it to her mom, and then John's disciples come and bury him in a respectful way. Why that story in the midst of this? Like, why that sandwich? Jesus sends out the 12, and that seems like a positive. And then in the midst of that, Mark puts this story about the death of John the Baptist, which probably didn't happen chronologically at this point anyway. Certainly, John had already been arrested. It had been at over a year since he'd been in prison. Why, why here? I think there's, a, there's, there's something there. Remember, we've talked before, way back when we started in Mark, we said Mark was written to some Christians in Rome, and things were starting to heat up for them. We can look back and say things were about to get really bad for them. They didn't know that at the time, but things were starting to heat up. And I think there's... I think Mark put this story in here to encourage his congregation to say, hey, listen, Jesus has given all of y'all authority. All of you have a part to play in, what, in this mission. 
There, there's, there's things to say and there's things to do. In our language, we would say, he's, you know, there's calling. He wants you to do your deal. There's a, there's a way that he wants you to contribute to what he's doing in the world. The kingdom is advancing and it's advancing through his people. And you have a part to play in that. But recognize that just because you're being obedient, that doesn't immunize you from suffering. John was obedient. He was preparing the way for the Messiah and it got him thrown in jail and he got his head cut off. Obedience does not inoculate us from the evil in the world. I think that's what Mark is wanting to say. I think he's being led by the... I don't think Mark necessarily knows that things are about to get worse, but obviously God does. He inspires Mark. And it's, a, it's an encouragement and maybe in a sense a, a reality check for his congregation. Just th- This is what happens. Jesus was rejected by his family. You, you might be rejected by yours as well. John was imprisoned and killed. He, he suffered because of his obedience. And you may suffer because of yours as well. Those stories don't necessarily resonate with us in the Bible Belt in 2022. Uh, none of us have faced persecution because of our faith. And I don't know that any of us have honestly even faced discomfort because of our faith. It seems very far removed. There are hundreds of millions of Christians around the world. For This is real for them. If they say yes to Jesus, their families reject them. If they say yes to Jesus, they could lose their jobs. They could be thrown in jail and they may even be killed. That happens all over the world right now in 2022. It just doesn't necessarily happen in Marietta. It's not really what's going on in Cobb County. Again, it kind of creates this disconnect from us where we can hear that and say, oh, that's sad and and maybe thinking back to the parable of the soils, we can go, I want to have deep roots. I don't want to be that plant that withers and dies when the sun comes up. When persecution comes, I don't want to fall away. I don't want to do that. But again, there's, there's this sense in which it's not immediate for us. It doesn't feel like our lives. But I was thinking about another thread that runs through these first 30 verses of chapter 6 that I do think could be something that does poke on us a little bit, and I, I want to use it as an encouragement for you over the next two months. If we think of Memorial Day as kind of the unofficial start of summer, um, what thinking of June and July, and maybe something we can focus on before school kicks, kicks back off in August. When I think of Herod, he's someone who ne- he'd never seen Jesus. He'd never met him. He'd never heard him. He just heard about him. So he's a, he's a stranger in some ways to Jesus. And then when I think about the people in Nazareth, we, we could say they knew him better than anybody. They at least knew him longer than anybody had. Again, 25, 26, 27 years, they knew him. And again, this is a really small village, 200 to 500 people. So th- they knew him. There's no hiding in a village that small. So we have someone who's never met him and some people who literally grew up with him, knew him from when he was in whatever the Palestinian version of diapers are in A.D., you know, Two, they, they knew him since then. And what they have in common is they both missed him. They didn't really know him. Most of us, I know you, you don't fall in the Herod category because you know Jesus, but it's easy for us to fall into this Nazarene category. It's easy for us to create a picture of who Jesus is and then just kind of let that be set. And we don't necessarily continue to explore new dimensions of his character and of his personality. Y'all have heard that um, old 
poem about the blind men and the elephant. These six blind men, they've never obviously seen an elephant. They don't know what an elephant is. And so they say, we're going to discover this thing. So they all go to, to an elephant and they all touch a different part. And they all have a different perspective. If you're touching the tusk, an elephant, it's like a spear. And if you're touching the leg, it's like a tree. And the tail, it's like a rope. And the side, it's like a wall. And the ear, it's like a fan. And the trunk, it's like a snake. And there's a sense in which they're all right. But there's also a sense in which they're all wrong. And Jesus is bigger than an elephant. And so for any of us to think we've got him figured out, we know all there is to know, we're, we're missing, we're blind. We're missing something. And so in June and July, where I, I want to encourage you is to, is, is to take one dimension of Jesus' character and to, to, to press into that. Something that for you is underemphasized. And so we're going to take a minute, we're going to ask the Holy Spirit whose job it is to guide us into the truth and say, show me something. Where am I missing it? You can, there's a, a slide behind me. It's got some different roles of Jesus. There's, there's more. There were just ones I thought of. This morning, we all kind of get Jesus as Savior. That's the initial way we approach him. He rescues us from sin and death. He forgives us of our sins. A subcategory of that is Jesus as our deliverer. He fights for us. He, he defends us. He rescues us from trouble. Some of us don't relate to him that way. We see him as the one who forgives, the one who's gonna, who makes it possible for us to live forever with the Father, but we kind of stop there. Some of us don't think of Jesus as someone who can rescue us from trouble right now beyond just sin and death some of us don't recognize jesus as king we live in a democracy on tuesday we voted we voted for our leaders you don't get to vote for the king if we don't like him, we get to vote for somebody else and honestly for most of us you can go a day or you can go several days or several weeks even without the the decisions of the people you elected directly impacting you it's not so with a king they're sovereign over every aspect of life and they demand obedience. Some of us, we don't, that's a hard one for us. We don't necessarily intellectually say, yeah, Jesus is the king, but do we live a life submitted to him in every area of our life? Jesus is a shepherd. That's a, when I think of that, I think of the dailiness of life. He guides, he, he protects, he, he, uh, prov he provides for us. Do you relate to him as a shepherd and as a good shepherd, a, as a healer, some of us, that's a, we talked about that last week. For some of us, that's a hard one. And we've been disappointed in the past, and so we've kind of cut that off and said, that's not who Jesus is to me. If I'm going to ask him for healing, it's going to be because I've tried everything else and nothing's working. He heals bodies. He heals hearts. He heals minds. He heals relationships. Jesus as a teacher, sometimes we lose sight of this. But we think of Jesus, we think of him in a primitive way. 2,000 years ago, and we're really smart because we have computers now. But we don't know how to live life. He sets the example for how to live life well and how many of us are willing to apprentice ourselves to him in all areas of life to acknowledge that Jesus is not just wise, that he's also smart and that he's smarter than us. Are we asking him for information, for direction? A lot of, there's overlap in all of these roles. Maybe one of those hits you as something that you don't necessarily uh, think about when you think about Jesus. And again, this is not just intellectual. To know is experiential. Are you, are you relating to him in the fullness of who he is? And I'll go ahead and tell you the answer is no. And the answer is no for me as well. 
part of what we need to acknowledge is we're all like those blind men and we're just touching a part of him. There's always more. He's bigger than an elephant. We don't want to be like the people in his hometown who when he shows up, we reject him because he doesn't meet our... That's not who you are. You're a savior. What do you mean you're also telling me how to live, how to run my business? That's not, that's outside of your area. You can talk to me about my character, but you can't talk to me about my work. I know more about that than you, or, or that's not spiritual, or, or however we do that. And it can cause us to reject him. He can be a stumbling block to us in those ways as well. Again, it's, it's easy to look at the Nazarenes and say, well, I would never do that. We, all, we do it all the time. We're not better than them. Again, there's, there's a, a fullness to who Jesus is that's easy for us uh, to miss because our perspective is limited. So this is what I want us to do. We're going to um, take communion, but we're going to pray a particular prayer. We're going to uh, take communion this morning through the, this, this grid or through this lens of, Jesus, I want to know you more. I want to know you more. And so there's a corporate prayer that we're going to pray together. But before we do, let me give you some logistics. Uh, we'll have you come forward a row at a time. You'll come down the middle and then go back down the sides. For those of you guys in the wing, there's communion up there in that corner. And we've got, you got options. There's regular bread, gluten-free bread, and then those little cups. Whatever you're the most comfortable with, you, you grab that. Then you can just go back to your seat. Bo will be leading us in worship during this time. And again, what I want you thinking about, and you can go ahead and close your eyes if you would. Uh, what I want you thinking about... Let's just ask the Holy Spirit this. Would you show me, and you can pray this in your heart if you're willing to do that. Will you show me one truth about Jesus that I'm underemphasizing, that I'm neglecting? And maybe one of those five, they'll stay up on the screen if you want to look at those. It may be something else. And remember, this is not just intellectual. This is actually approaching Jesus as this. So if the conviction point is, man, he's not, I don't, I don't relate to Jesus as a shepherd. Then it's not just intellectually saying, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It's beginning to relate to him accordingly, saying things like in your prayers. Jesus, I acknowledge you're my shepherd today, so lead me. I want to be led by you. Jesus, you're my shepherd, so you provide for me. So I'm going to, go, I'm going to work, I'm going to do my part, but I want to acknowledge that ultimately everything I have is because you've given it to me. You protect Jesus. My, I have this tendency to want to defend myself or to fight for what I feel like is mine. But you're my shepherd, so I'm going to trust you to fight battles for me. What, however that begins to look, again, this isn't just intellectual. It's approaching him in these ways. It's not an overnight deal. Again, we'll take the next couple of months. So lock in on something. As you take communion, I want you to, as you come forward and break off the bread and dip it in the juice, just in your mind, let this be the first time maybe that you say, Jesus, I'm approaching you as my fill-in-the-blank.
Let's pray this prayer, and then we'll take communion. We'll pray it together. We'll say it all. You guys can stand up. We'll say this out loud together. Communion teams, if you guys want to go ahead and come up, that'd be great. Okay. Father, forgive us. We confess that we have neglected to seek Jesus with all of our hearts, minds, souls, and strength. Holy Spirit, guide us more fully into the truth of who Jesus is. Give us eyes to see him as he truly is. Jesus, we want to know you. As we take communion in remembrance of what you have done, show us who you are. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. 